Well, open your Bibles with me to Genesis chapter 3, and we continue exploring the beginnings of the creation of this world, the beginning of man's existence, the beginning of the covenant that God will make with man. And so we've looked at the perfection of God's creation. We've seen now that it has been disturbed not only by the presence of the serpent, the adversary of the Lord God and all of his people, but now through the temptation provided by the adversary, the crown jewel of God's creation, have ignored the voice of their creator, of their provider, and instead have listened to the voice of his adversary. I think to us today it is unimaginable that Adam and Eve could possibly do such a thing. For an unknown amount of time, probably very, very short, they have enjoyed in full the glory, the majesty, and the undiminished presence of God. We don't know if this is a matter of days or weeks or months, probably not very long. And what we learned is that they throw it all away. They exchange the truth of God for a lie, and it brings to them separation from God and consequence that they can't even begin to imagine. So as we look at this passage of Scripture and as we walk through this process of disobedience, it appears to me at least that there's very little struggle, there's very little thought about disobeying God's singular command. And in exchange for a lie, they do throw it all away. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, a German pastor in the 30s and 40s, wrote a book on temptation. And in that book, he says this, quote, With irresistible power, desire seizes mastery over the flesh. It makes no difference whether it's sexual desire or ambition or vanity or desire for revenge or love of fame and power or greed for money. Joy in God is extinguished in us, and we seek all our joy in the creature. At this moment, God is quite unreal to us. He loses all all reality, and only desire for the creature is real. Satan does not here fill us with hatred of God, but with forgetfulness of God. The lust thus aroused envelops the mind and and the will of man in deepest darkness, The powers of clear discrimination and of decision are taken from us. He concludes by saying this, The questions present themselves. Is what the flesh desires really sin in this case? Is it really not permitted to me, yes, expected of me now here in my particular situation to appease this desire? And so is the process of temptation. And so is the ease with which we throw away the provision of God and succumb to a substitute and a lie and that which actually brings to us death or separation from God. So it is here in this passage that we see the temptation provided by the serpent awakening a sinful desire within Adam and Eve. And it is this desire to become so strong that they ignored the only command from God and they turned their back on all the glory of God that they had experienced in this brief time in the garden. 
So Eve first minimized the freedom God had given them to eat from the trees of the garden, then added a strictness to his word that simply was not there, and finally softened his word in regard to the certainty of death should they sin and disobey this command. Eve's revision left her open to believe the lie of Satan against all her experience of God's goodness. Think about that. Think about all of the experience of God's goodness that we have experienced, we have enjoyed, we have clung to, and how quickly we exchange that experience for that evil desire that is awakened in us through temptation. Therefore, she rises up against His Word. She took the fruit and she ate of it, and then she gave to Adam. Adam's transgression of God's Word carried greater responsibility for three reasons. One, God's Word had been given directly to him before Eve was created. Two, he was present with Eve during the temptation, as evidenced in the passage we looked at last week, where Satan's consistent usage of the plural you in his address to Eve, indicating that Adam was there. Thirdly, Adam, in self-serving passivity, allowed his wife to eat of the fruit while he simply looked on. Then, seeing that she did not die when she ate, he also ate of the fruit. Adam was not deceived as Eve was. His rebellion was an informed Eyes wide open, self-serving rejection of God and His Word. It was outright rebellion. This is why Adam holds a greater responsibility. This is why the fall of mankind or humanity is attributed to Adam, even though he actually ate second. So as we go through our outline of the fall of man, we're looking at number three, which is the confrontation. And so after having gained the knowledge of good and evil, having eaten from the fruit of that tree, Adam and Eve have sown fig leaves together because they have just discovered their nakedness. And so we read together in verses 8 all the way down to 13. They heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. Then the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? He said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid myself. And he said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, The woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me from the tree, and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this you have done? And the woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. Now, in a perfect world, I would not stop here. I would continue to go through to the curse that is later pronounced. But for the sake of time and the ability to flesh out some of the really important things in here, we're not going to do that. So as we look at the confrontation, the first part of what we see here is God's appearing. The beginning part of verse 8 says, They heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And so it seems that immediately after eating the fruit and making coverings to hide their nakedness, God's presence is now recognized in the garden. Though God is everywhere that He is omniscient, omnipotent, omnipresent, 
the Garden of Eden was the special place of God's presence on earth, it is the Garden Tabernacle, much like the later Tabernacle and Temple for the nation of Israel. So God's presence is always in the garden, just like God's presence is always amongst us. But it is the recognition of God's presence that takes place in verse 8 that now awakens Adam and Eve to the very presence of God in the garden. So God is everywhere, and His presence is always in the garden tabernacle. And what they hear is the reality of God's presence amongst them. God's presence is recognized by the sound of His walking in the garden. This is an anthropomorphic description because God does not walk. He does not have arms and legs and feet. He is spirit, but it is depicted to us as if God is physically walking in the garden and they hear Him walking in the garden and it awakens them to His ever-present reality, this ever-present reality of God being in the garden. So it's interesting that there is a time of day that is referenced here as the cool of the day and the Hebrew word for that is the word ruah, which is the word for wind. It is the same word that describes the Spirit of God God that is hovering over the face of the earth before the detail of creation is acted out upon. It's also the same word that is used when God breathes life into the nostrils of Adam and gives to him life. So it is the wind of God, it is the Spirit of God, it is the presence of God that is realized now in the cool of the day, which is described as the breeze of the day. And it is simply God making His presence known to Adam and Eve in the garden. The the description here gives the impression that there is a regular, fixed, set time that God makes His presence known to Adam and Eve, and He makes this appearing for the purpose of fellowshipping with them. Now, while God is everywhere, He's not simply hanging out in the garden with Adam and Eve. God makes His presence known to them, just as God will do to us today in a variety of ways. First and foremost, through His Word. Also, through our time of prayer with Him. Sometimes in this internal impression that we get from the Spirit who indwells us. Sometimes through the circumstances of life. God is always with us, but God makes His presence known to us in these unique ways. And it is here that God is making His presence known to Adam and Eve in the cool of the day, through the breeze that is experienced, through perhaps a sound of God walking, the rustling of whatever may be in the garden. And so God... God's appearing is for the purpose of fellowshipping with them. Now, there's something else that's also important here, and that is the phrase that is used by Moses where he is walking in the garden. So this is a favorite expression in the writings of Moses to describe the righteous conduct of Israel's heroes like Enoch and Noah and Abraham and others. And as an example, we see in Genesis 5.22 that Enoch walked with God 300 years after he became the father of Methuselah and he had other sons and daughters. And so this depiction of God walking is this righteous conduct 
that is exhibited by God, expected by God's people. And so the connection here is walking with God encompasses being in God's presence rightly in our conduct, rightly in our activity, so as to be able to experience the reality of His presence with us. Now that same idea of walking with God is brought into God's commitment to the nation of Israel through covenant and His expectation of them as a part of the covenant. And we would read this in Leviticus 26.12. I will also walk among you and be your God and you shall be my people. So here's the key. The experience of God's presence walking with us is going to be experienced by us when we are living rightly, when we are living obediently, and it is in this time that God makes His presence known to us and real to us. The opposite of that is when we are not walking rightly, when we are not walking in obedience, although God is ever-present everywhere, we don't expect, we don't experience His presence like we should, and oftentimes people will say, God, where are you? God, are you here? God, I'm calling, but I can't tell that you're even here. And it's the reality of uh, an unrighteous life not experiencing the ever-present reality of God's presence amongst us. So God's presence is recognized in the garden for this regular time of fellowship with the crown jewel of His creation. And there's really something important that we're going to look at here in just a moment, but we'll pause for that. But something in the garden temple has radically changed. Rather than excitedly rejoicing in God's presence, we instead see their hiding. Verse 8 goes on to say, And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. So the fruit of the tree that they were told would make them like God has now caused them to be afraid of seeing Him or of being seen by Him. Instead of running to God in the cool of the day for this time of fellowship, they are now running away from God in an effort to hide themselves. The words of the serpent were not true. They did not become like God. They are now afraid of God. So the promise made through temptation never delivers. Never ever does the promise of temptation Deliver what it is promised. It is a cleverly disguised way of separating us from what we need the most, and that is the enjoyment found in the presence of God. There's been times in my life where I've been laid low, and I have cried out to the Lord. And what I needed most was His presence. And it is in those moments that we never forget the intensity with which we are made aware of God's indwelling Spirit within us. Not just the generic God is everywhere, but God is here with me. He's right by my side. This is what we need the most. This is what temptation is designed to remove from us when we believe the lie and intentionally turn our 
backs to the Word of God. The man can never be successful in hiding from God because God sees it all and He knows it all. Hebrews 4.13 communicates this. There's no creature hidden from His sight, but all things are open and laid bare to the eyes of Him with whom we have to do. I want to tell you, when you're walking with God, what a great promise this is. When you're not walking with God, what a fearful promise this is. But God is everywhere. God sees it all. And we could never hide from God. And so as we go back to the hiding of Adam and Eve, the language of the verse here that we see tucked in, the man and his wife, it imitates the description of the couple when in their recent state of innocence had lived without any shame. They had lived in the joy of God's presence, expectant upon His arrival, and now they are hiding. They have lost their innocence, their childlike trust in the goodness of God, and they are hiding from Him among the trees that He had provided for them as a means of feeding them. So God has appeared, and they have hid. And we see here, letter C in our outline, God's calling. Verse 9. Then the Lord called to the man and said to him, Where are you? Well, never think for a minute that God did not know where they were. And don't ever think for a minute that God didn't know exactly what was wrong. Because God is omniscient, He knows everything. And beyond that, He knows even the things which have not yet happened. He knows why they happened. He knows the consequence of their happening. And the outcome that is going to be experienced. What is remarkable about this calling is that God is still seeking after Adam and Eve, even though He knows precisely what it is they have done, and He knows precisely where they are, although they think they can hide from Him. God is seeking them calling for them even after they had blatantly disregarded the only thing that He had commanded of them. This tells us so much about the intentions of God. His intention is to provide our best. It is to provide what we need in spite of our sin against Him. Think about that. Think about... The condition that each of us was in spiritually, when we recognized and understood who this God really is, and what it is He requires, and what it is He provided, God sought us and enabled us to know Him, even in our terrible state of sin. The wretched condition of our Lives are spirits. God sees and knows, and yet He still calls. That tells us a lot about God, doesn't it? So the question that God asks here, where are you, is God actually asking Adam, why are you there and not here where you should be? Think about that. Why are you there And why are you not here where you should be? You know, God knows that we need to come to Him to receive mercy and grace in our time of need. 
And when we cry out to God, God says, where are you? Why are you there? Not here where you need to be. What an incredible intention of the loving Father to always want to provide what is best for us, even in a state of sinfulness. The covenant creator is continually seeking out the one with whom he has made this covenant or this one that he will make a covenant with. God is constantly seeking. He's not seeking Adam and Eve to punish them. He did not make his presence in the garden known through a tornado, through a fierce or mighty wind, but just as God had always appeared in a cool of a day with a light breeze that alerts them to his presence, God appears to them and he is calling them They will be punished. And here he is seeking them to elicit a confession from them because he knows what it is they have done. He knows what it is they need. And he seeks to provide for them the best. You'll notice that God calls out for the man. He called for the man. And this is hidden from us through the Hebrew text where it is a you singular, not a you plural, as the you was plural in the dialogue between the serpent and Eve. So Adam is going to be held primarily primarily responsible for their sin. And God is singling out Adam in this initial inquiry. So letter D in the outline, we see Adam's response. God is calling, and Adam now responds here in verse 10. He said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid myself. Now, probably does us some good to envision the scene that's taking place here. We have God, the powerful, majestic, all-knowing creator in the temple garden that he created, calling out for the man. And the man is hiding himself in a futile effort to delay giving an account. So upon knowing that he could not successfully hide from God, Adam creeps out from behind a tree or perhaps from behind some bushes Guilty, ashamed, red-faced with embarrassment, wearing a hastily put-together loin covering. And he says, here I am. To his credit, Adam gives an honest answer. And Adam's answer is, I was afraid of you, so I hid. That's what he says. I was afraid of you, so I hid. His answer is void of any responsibility for eating of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. He simply states the way he feels. I felt ashamed. I felt afraid. Why? Because I am naked, so I hid. I was afraid, and I hid from you. Adam has undergone a profound change. All he could do was express his fear and his shame. The only thing that Adam truly confessed to God was a feeling, a feeling of fear. That's it. Now, we know that he knew he had broken God's command, but in this new self-focused state, this awareness, this knowledge of good and evil, he's more concerned about how he felt than about the fact that he has sinned against God. This self-focus and hiding from God is inherent in our fallen condition. This is why Paul would recite from the Psalms, no one seeks for God. 
Instead, everyone runs from God. And if God didn't first seek after us, as He is doing here with Adam, there could be no relationship with Him because of the seriousness and the severity of sin. So Adam has now climbed out, crawled out from behind a tree or a bush, and he's made his presence known to God, and he said basically, I was afraid of you, so I hid, I'm naked, I feel ashamed. And we see letter E in the outline is God's questioning of Adam. And he said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? So God begins this questioning by using Adam's words as a means of impressing upon him his condition of guilt. Who told you that you were naked? Now, in their state of innocence, Adam and Eve did not know they were naked. There was not a a need for clothing. There was not a sense of a need for modesty. They were perfectly right in the state of innocence to happily exist in a state of nakedness. But now with the knowledge of good and evil and all of the perversion that comes from that knowledge, they now look at each other differently and they are ashamed of this nakedness that that has now been realized by them. So Adam did not realize until after eating from the fruit that he was naked. And rather than making him feel like God, the fruit made him aware of his nakedness and brought to him shame and guilt. The promise of the serpent was not true. The knowledge of good and evil didn't make them strong and powerful and mighty like God. It made them ashamed. It brought to them guilt. And the action that is accompanied that feeling is hiding from God, running from God, avoiding fellowship with God. God knew the only way Adam could recognize this naked state found in their innocence was by disobeying the only command that he had given. So God presses the point, have you eaten from the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? Now, of course, there's only one true and correct answer, and God knows the answer to that question, and Adam fails miserably in giving an account for his actions. Now, lastly, in the outline, we have their excuses, and we'll treat both the excuse of Adam and Eve singularly. And so we read in verse 12, the man said, the woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me from the tree, and I ate. Now, Adam's excuse is an obvious attempt to shift both the blame and the responsibility for his sin. First, Adam blames God. The woman you gave to be with me, that woman... That woman you gave me, God. You see, God, this never would have happened if you hadn't given me that woman. It's plain and simple. I would have been happy in the garden. I would have taken care of it. I would have tended to the animals. I would have been all you desired me to be. But that woman you gave me, you gave me, Secondly, very quickly, he blames Eve. She gave me from the tree. That woman you gave me, she gave me from the tree. 
and I ate. It's as if Adam had no idea what was going on. He was just an innocent bystander, perhaps strolling through the garden. And Eve says, here, have a bite of this. And Adam says, oh, that looks good to eat. I'll have a bite. And woof, it's all over, right? That's the impression that Adam is giving here. She gave me from the treat. I had no idea. It's your fault, God, for giving me that woman. Marital bliss has come to an end because Adam has thrown Eve under the bus. And it has stopped and backed up and gone forward. And he's basically saying, hey, I'm cleaning all this. I had nothing to do with it. It's not my fault. So if we, if we go back to chapter 2, when in day 6 of creation, God in, in his foreknowledge and God in his predetermined plan says it's not good for man to be alone. It wasn't something wrong with creation. It was that creation was not yet completed because the helpmate that man needed that God intended was not that was not yet there. And so God says it's not good for man to be alone and so he puts Adam to sleep and he fashions out of Adam's rib this beautiful woman that is going to be his helpmate, his partner. And this is what we read in Genesis 2, 22 to 25. The Lord God fashioned into a woman the rib which he had taken from the man. He brought her to the man. Here you go, Adam. This is for you. The man said, This is now bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and his mother and be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. Now, it's not recorded in chapter 2, but in chapter 1's narrative of creation, it is after God made them in his image, he made them male and female, he says, be fruitful and multiply. And I can assure you that when Adam looked out at all of the created beings and then looked at Eve, he said, wow, this is really incredible. Thank you, God. Thank you, God. This is wonderful. But here in chapter 3, just a few days, weeks, or months later, that woman you gave me, she's the one who is at fault for this. It is not until after Adam blames God and then blames Eve that he acknowledges his sin by saying, I ate. But God is not fooled. God knows exactly what transpired. He doesn't need the information. What he needs is, what he wants is a confession. It is a responsibility. Eve also shares in this responsibility. And he turns his attention to her in verse 13. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this you have done? And the woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. Her response is really no better than Adam's. She avoids responsibility by blaming the serpent. And in effect, she says, if he wasn't so clever, this never would have happened. If he would have never come into the garden, and oh, by the way, you probably could have prevented him from ever coming into the garden, but if he hadn't come into the garden and deceived me, this never would have happened. Well, God questions them, and they provide their answers, and neither one of them show any sign of repentance, any sign of remorse, they simply default to blame. They're content to shift the blame in an attempt to hide their shame and guilt and divert responsibility to someone or something else. And such is the way of mankind today. 
never truly responsible. Someone else is always to blame. It's my parents. It's my friends. It's my circumstances. It's the way God made me. It's the place that God put me. It's the people God has allowed to surround me. It's always the same. We're always victims. We're never the offender. Always victims. Despite this propensity of mankind to deflect responsibility, to blame someone or something else, to easily, without much challenge, turn our backs on His Word and turn to sin, believing the lie. Even though that is true, God seeks us, God desires us, and God makes a way for us. But only through the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross. Where would we be apart from the goodness, the grace, and the loving kindness of God? Romans 5.17 says, For if by the transgression of the one death reigned through the one, much more those who receive the abundance of grace and of the gift of righteousness will reign in life through the one, Jesus Christ. God didn't have to do that. We are not entitled to that. We are not deserving of that. God would be completely within His rights to have flooded the earth or exploded the earth and just left it all alone and enjoyed the worship of the angelic beings for time without end, as He did before anything was created. But He didn't do that. The Lord God, the covenant Creator, seeks us, desiring our fellowship, wanting to provide what's best for us. And we need to be reminded because we are incredibly stubborn and short-sighted that we find that provision through the provision given to us in His Word, which is eternal, which is perfect, which is the very words of life to us. God always sets before us life and death, blessing and curses. And when we live according to His Word, when we seek to honor and please Him through blessing, we will experience with greater reality and intensity the presence of the Lord in our lives. Would you join me in prayer, please?